0: It is good to be here uh, again. Um, If you missed it, my name is Joe Johnson. I'm the campus minister with RUF at Mississippi State. And um, I've been here numerous times throughout the last year. And this is my last Sunday for for a while. And I'm so excited about your new pastor and the unanimous vote, which is a big deal. And um, we're praying for you all and excited to see what God does here in the future. And I'm just down the road, so I'll be there and um, would love to see you often. Uh, We're going to be in Psalm 131 uh, this morning. Psalm one thirty one. If you have your Bibles, we've been looking at the Psalms together for a little bit, looking at selections from the Psalter. I love the Psalms because God didn't have to give us the Psalms. Uh, they are these unique prayers and songs and, and 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 poems that we are to engage with at the heart level, where He gives us words to articulate the deepest longings of our souls, the emotions that we don't even really understand. Uh, That he gives us words for our sadness and our anger, our doubt, our faith, our worship. He gives us words to say when we don't know what to say. Uh, To get these words into our bones, to sing them as his people. Uh, And this psalm this morning is maybe a psalm that God gives us words to sing when we really don't mean these words. When we really don't feel these words, but we long that they be true about us. Uh, this psalm is one of the reasons why I fell in love with this book, why I want to preach the psalms often, and it really is this one line from it. I have calm and quieted my soul. I remember reading that thinking, I want to know what that's like. And I don't know a human being in the world who could hear that phrase and not want to lean in and wonder, how do I get that for myself? A calm and quieted soul, where so often our souls feel the opposite of those things. This psalm leads God's people to think about the idea of contentment, contentment no matter what comes in life. What does it look like? What does it feel like? How do we do it to have a calm and quieted soul no matter what comes? So with that in mind, let me read this psalm very short, just three verses in total. And this is God's word for us this morning. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great or too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord. From this time forth and forevermore. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray and ask for God's help. Uh, This little psalm uh, that you gave us, Lord, these little words, calm and quieted, they're so difficult. Uh, They're so hard for us to experience. They are all what we long for in a busy world, in a crazy and unexpected and chaotic world, um, even when that chaos comes within us. And our souls are all knotted up. Uh, Lord, we pray as we look at this psalm, as we look to you, that we might sense a calmness and a quietness, a stillness before you. Uh, That Lord, you long for your people to be like a weaned child, a weaned child in the arms of his mother, a children in the arms of his father. Help us do that. And Jesus, as we look at this psalm, help us to see you more clearly and find you more beautiful in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, a little intense way to begin this sermon, an intense story from church history, uh, but it's the story of how a man named Polycarp died. Uh, Polycarp, one of the church fathers in the first few centuries of the church, he was a disciple of the Apostle John, uh, the John that wrote the Gospel and Revelation in his letters. He was a disciple under him. And he was a Christian his whole life. For 86 years, he followed Jesus. Uh, But he was a Christian in the Roman Empire, which would make Christianity illegal at this point. And so at some point as he was serving the church, serving Jesus, Polycarp at 86 years old, was arrested, uh, was brought before trial and asked a question. And they asked the old man a question, will you deny Christ? And he said at that point, no, you can kill me, you can do whatever you want, uh, but I'm not going to deny Christ. And so they said, we'll kill you. And so instead of putting him in a prison, instead of doing those kind of things, uh, they tied him to a stake, preparing to burn him at the stake, and they gave him one more chance. Maybe as he sees the fire, maybe as he sees his fate coming, maybe he'll change his mind and save himself, and they say, will you deny Christ? And this is what he said, for 86 years I have served Jesus, and he has never done me any evil. How could I now curse my king? And so at that moment, they lit the fire. And as he was dying, Polycarp prayed this. For this moment, God, I thank you. And for this moment, I pray that I'm worthy. And for this moment, I bless you. I remember hearing that story in seminary and having kind of two reactions at the same time. And I wonder if you're feeling this, two reactions at the same time. The first is encouragement. How incredible of a story of a a man who's showing that his whole life and his whole death being given up to Christ is a death and life worth giving. Uh, That he content there in that moment where many of us would panic, he saw Jesus, the glory of Jesus, and held firm, held strong, and gives us encouragement in our faith today. A great deal of encouragement. But at the very same time, I wonder if we hear a story like that and we actually feel a lot of discouragement because though that's great for Polycarp, we might not feel that so much in our everyday life. That in that great moment, he could have that much confidence in Christ, he could have that much confidence in God's working through him, and in the mundane moments of my everyday life, I can feel so much discontentment for so much less. Uh, When I think of my life, I think I said this last week that my wife's joke about me is that I can take good news and make it bad news in about 12 seconds. I could take a compliment that someone meant for good, I can mix the words around, I can wonder what they didn't say and all of a sudden it becomes an insult that I think about for the rest of my week. I can think of one thing in my life that's bothering me when everything else seems to be going great. Um, when we bought our house in Starkville. I continued on for months looking on Zillow for other houses that maybe we missed or we could have lived in. I complain about winter and wish it was summer. I complain about summer and wish it was winter. I say spring is my favorite season and yet I get sick all during the spring because of allergies. My wife says you're always looking forward to the next season, but Joe, you hate the next season. I can always feel discontentment and we think about our lives and there's always one thing that we could say I wish that was gone if that was just gone. That situation, that person, if I could just get rid of that, everything else would be fine. But we all know what's universally true, that if that one thing were to go away, we would find another thing and another thing and another thing to worry about, to fear, and to be discontent over. But this psalm, this psalm leads us to think about contentment in a different way. That no matter what comes, regardless of circumstances, there is a way to have a calmed and quieted soul. I actually want you to notice that that calmed and quieted, those are actually verbs. He has done that to himself. He has calmed his soul. He has quieted his soul. There is an art to this. There is a practice of this. So the question this morning is how do we do it? In the midst of life, in the midst of children and family and jobs, in the midst of diagnosis, in the midst of things coming we cannot control, how do we have a calm and quieted soul? Well, the psalm gives us a very simple answer that the way of contentment really is to know and experience the care of God on a daily basis. The way of contentment is to know and experience the care of God on a daily basis. And so two things as we walk through this very short psalm, I want to talk about first, what gets in the way of our contentment? And then secondly, what is the way of contentment? What gets in the way of contentment? And then second, what is the way of contentment? So first, what gets in the way of our contentment? Um, This is what we call one of the Psalms of Ascent. There's 15 psalms later on in the book of Psalms that are called the Psalm of Ascent. That's what they're titled in the little headings in your Bible. And we don't exactly know what these mean, but we have a theory. And the theory is this, that on the high holidays, as God's people would make their journey to Jerusalem, Jerusalem being a city on a hill, on a mountain, they would ascend up to Jerusalem. And so we believe these are the songs that they sung on their way to Jerusalem. Psalms of Ascent. And so as we think about this psalm, that's not a very famous psalm. We might not have known it until this morning as we read it. Don't think a random psalm that a young child would not know, but think more of a holiday hymn that a child would grow up singing as they journey with their families to celebrate the high holidays in Jerusalem. I Think a very familiar Christmas carol that would be associated with different memories and different smells and your child and your family. And so it's interesting to think that, that the way this kind of holiday hymn starts is verse one, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. That does not seem like any Christmas carol we would sing. Starts off very somber. But where the psalmist begins here is by talking about the way to discontentment. Almost putting two paths forward, it reminds me a lot of Psalm 1. If you remember Psalm 1, the path of the righteous man, the path of the wicked man, that that now the psalmist is beginning by showing us contentment by looking at its opposite. What gets in the way of our contentment? And so what does he say gets in the way of our contentment? And the first thing that he says, I want to define as pride. Pride gets in the way of our contentment. My heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. Another way to translate that, my my heart is not too haughty. My eyes are not too prideful. And it's interesting to think about how could pride get in the way of contentment? Uh, You don't think about prideful, arrogant people struggling with contentment. You sort of think about prideful and arrogant people need to be brought lower, made a little bit more uncomfortable, humbled, right, knocked off their high horse. But then when you begin to think about what pride is, it begins to make sense. Most church fathers will say pride is the original sin. Uh, Aquinas calls it the first sin. C.S. Lewis called it the great sin. called it pride with a capital P in mere Christianity. And Jonathan Edwards referred to pride as the foundation of Satan's entire household. I don't really know what that means, but we can at least point to say that pride in the eyes of most, in the eyes of Scripture, in the eyes of the Proverbs, is a foundational sin. And it's not typically just arrogance. It's not typically just overconfidence. When we think about pride as the heart sin, what it really is, is a self-absorption that leads to a warped perspective. Pride is a self-absorption that leads to a warped perspective. When you survey the Proverbs, as it talks about pride, and it talks about pride a lot, we see that pride is us putting ourselves at the very center of the universe with all pressure upon ourselves. And so what does it do? It warps everything that we see around us. It warps first our view of ourselves. Uh, pride will either make us uh, the one with all pressure upon ourselves to get the life that we want, and if we do it, we become arrogant or It will put us, the one that all pressure is on, and we fail, we become shame-filled and insecure. You actually see pride and insecurity really are the same sin. They are self-absorption of a warped perspective. We are making ourselves something that we were never made to be, putting ourselves at the center of the universe where the world begins to not make sense anymore. Pride doesn't even help us know ourselves and our faults and our failures and our need. The second way pride warps our perspective is it warps our perspective of others, making others competition, people to compete with, to prove ourselves against. Uh, This is C.S. Lewis from Mere Christianity, his great chapter on pride. He says this, when we say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good looking, they are not. They are actually proud of being richer, cleverer, better looking than others. If everyone became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would really be nothing to be proud about. Uh, Pride is a comparative sin. And it warps our perspectives of people around us. Instead of people to love and, and to lean upon and to need, they are people to beat. And it even warps our perspective of how we relate and how we see ourselves in the eyes of others. I use this illustration often with my students, but imagine a student, a college student, getting a 90 on an exam. A 90 in my book is a great grade. You know 90% of the material. I don't know 90% of anything. That is a great grade that you should be proud of. But when you get that 90, you all of a sudden begin to see your other friend's grades on that same test, and they all got 98s, 99s, and 100s, and you're the only one with a 90. That same grade all of a sudden becomes a source of shame, not because it changed, but because of what they got. But that same grade, if everyone else got a 40, a 50, a 60, all of a sudden you look at that saying it hasn't changed. It's the same number And all of a sudden you begin to think, I knew it. I'm brilliant. I'm smarter than everyone around me. And what was a source of shame all of a sudden becomes a source of pride. It has nothing to do with what we got or what we achieved or who we are. Everything to do with how we compare to others. And if that's true about grades, isn't that true about money? Isn't that true about our careers? Isn't that true about our families and how we raise our children? The things that we love most, we almost aren't concerned with how we're doing it, but how we're doing it compared to others around us. And it leads us not to love people and to love by people. It leads us to compete, to not see them as image bearers and people to serve, but as people to conquer. Pride warps our perspective on ourselves and warps our perspective on others. But then thirdly, It warps our perspective of God. And I think this is where the psalmist is going here. That our pride can actually make us misunderstand who God is and how he works. Uh, One author actually said, one commentator actually said that what pride can do is it can make you believe that everything good that you have, you earned it. You did it. And everything good that you don't have, you're owed that. And what does that do? That undercuts every gift from God. It undercuts every part of his work, the blessings that you received from him that you did not earn, the things that he gave you, the gifts that he gave you, the abilities that he gave you. It undercuts his goodness even when we don't have things that we want. Even when he denies us things in our prayer, it denies his goodness that he cannot be any less good to his people. Even if we don't get the answers that we want, it's for our good. It's because he loves us and yet pride can have a warped perspective on God himself that we don't see His goodness. And we walked around simply with a sense of owedness. Pride can destroy us. And so the psalmist says, run away. Don't have a prideful heart. Don't have eyes that are raised too high for things that you are not meant for. Root out pride and be God's humble people before him. What does pride look like for you? But the second thing he points to, what gets in the way of our contentment, It's similar, but there's a little difference here. It's presumption. Presumption gets in the way of our contentment. Look at verse, the second half of verse one. I do not occupy myself with things too great or too marvelous for me. Now what the psalmist could be meaning here is simply stating it again. Uh, To not grow in pride, to to run away from that, to not be obsessed with things that you don't have. But but also, I think there's something else here that one commentator points out. That to preoccupy ourselves with things too marvelous or too great for me, we're to be be preoccupied with things of God that we are not meant to be preoccupied with. To be preoccupied with his will that we don't know. Now, I don't mean his revealed will in scripture that we are to be devoted to, to be preoccupied with, to be obsessed with, to know what God is doing and how he's called us to live. But there is another side of God's will that he does not reveal to his people. He doesn't tell you what's gonna happen tomorrow. He doesn't tell you how that situation is gonna work out next week. He doesn't tell you how long you're gonna live. He, He doesn't tell you what decision to make next. He doesn't tell you what job to take. He doesn't tell you to take that risk or not take that risk. There's a lot of great mystery in the day-to-day of our life that leads us to dependence upon him, taking steps of faith, knowing that he's at work as we follow him. But we can also go another way where we are occupied with things too great and too marvelous for us to be our own God, to turn God into a vending machine into the sky that we, we, can, we can change his will, we can get what we need out of him if we just do the right things. Instead of being people who are humbled before the mystery of God, that he is infinite and I am finite and that leads us to worship a God that we can never fully comprehend. I think it's fascinating here that it's another reminder of the Psalms that he's God and we're not. And that's good news. I think it's amazing. Almost every Psalm has some reference to him being God and us not being him. Because I think there is something in our sinful hearts that always wants to get confused about that situation. It's like children coming into the world. I am the parent, they are the child. I am in charge, they are not. And every child that I have had that comes into this world is confused about that arrangement. And yet, what do they need to understand? That their best life is not being in control, but resting in their parents. Resting in their parents' care. They might not understand everything about what's going around them. They might not understand our finances. They might not understand our decisions or our care or our discipline, but it is all for their good. And if that's true for an imperfect parent who fails, how much more true is that of the God of his people? There are things too great and too marvelous for us. And so what does that lead us to do to sit and be still and worship God? What does discontentment look like in your life? And can we dig deep and actually say, I, I think it's these two. I think it's pride. I think it's presumption. I think I need to rest before God for a minute. That's the way of discontentment. What gets in the way of our contentment. But now, I want to talk about something positive. What is the way of contentment? And it's interesting where he goes from here because he uses one picture in verse two. But I've calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. Again, that calmed and quieted, those are verbs. We are to do those, to practice those. There is an art to it. How do we calm and quiet our souls? Well, he gives us a picture of a weaned child. And at first, I I didn't really understand the comparison here. I actually taught this psalm in our freshman Bible study a few weeks ago and I asked 18 year old did they know what a weaned child is and out of 30 people no one knew what a weaned child was and so we had to have some education that morning <laughs> but I remember the weaning process with my children and it was terrible uh, it was anxiety producing it was hard on my wife it was hard on the child There was a lot of crying it was, it was miserable at times but then you think what's on the other side of that process It's a beautiful thing. An unweaned child is anxious. An unweaned child is panicky at any discomfort, at any hunger, and screams and cries out out of survival. But a weaned child, a weaned child to some degree has learned that care will come. Food will come. That your mother has taken care of you every other time up to this point. It it, it will happen again. It might not look the same. It might not come when you thought But your mother loves you and she cares for you. And so you can rest. You could put down the anxiety. Do do you see? It's the same mother for both children. It's the same mother. It's the same perfect care, but one doesn't understand it and panics and one does understands it and gets to experience it more full. And so what is the Psalmist saying here? The calm and quieted soul looks like someone who knows the care of God and experiences it and expects it. One tries desperately to be God, the other rests in God. One is anxious about being enough, the other rests in the fact that Jesus is enough. One soul is panicked about the future, the other is able to weather storms because of the God who's over their future. And so what does a contented soul, a calm soul look like? It doesn't look like a soul that understands everything around it. It doesn't look like a people who have all the answers. It looks maybe like this. I may not know what my future holds, but God does and that's enough. I may not get the things I've always wanted, but Jesus can be nothing but good to me. I may struggle to compare myself with others. We all will. But God doesn't do that. And he loves me perfectly. I may not understand all that's going on in my life or my family or my relationships. But God does understand those things. And is sovereign over those things. And he is at work. And that's enough for me. Because you see where the psalmist is pointing all of us. Where the answer really is and it's verse 3. O Israel, Hope in the Lord. I wonder if you, like me, you see that, oh, Israel, and you long to hear the voice of the author here. What what is the tone behind this? Is this frustration? Oh, Israel, would you just get it together? Is it empathetic? Oh, Israel, I love you so much. Would you just please hope in the Lord? Is it desperate? What, what, What emotion is behind this? And whatever it might be, this is a psalm. A writer who desperately longs for God's people to act like God's people, to not hope in themselves, but to hope in the great God who holds the world in his hands. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. And on this side of the cross, we can say that we are not hoping ourselves for contentment, but, but hope in the one who went to the cross, described as sorrowful even to the point of death who went to the cross anxious, sweating blood, who went to the cross, we might say, discontented because he knew the wrath of God was coming upon him, but that was the way he was to reach and bring his people into right relationship with him. We hope in the one who did all things to bring his people home. There's a book in our house that we love, and we're gonna bring it out again as this new baby comes, but the name of the book is Runaway Bunny. It's by the same author that wrote Good Night Moon, which probably many of us have in our home. Uh, Runaway Bunny is a a book. I don't know who gave it to us, but I read it and I wept as I read it. Uh, Because it's this sweet story of a bunny, a mother bunny, and a baby bunny. And the baby bunny begins the book by saying, I'm going to run away from you, mother. And the mother asks, well, where will you go? And he says, well, I'm going to run very far away from you. And the mother bunny says, okay, well, if you run away, I will run after you and bring you home. And the baby bunny, not, not, um, not frustrated by that, says, well, if you run after me, I will become a fish and I'll swim away from you. To which the mother bunny responds, if you become a fish and swim away from me, I'll become a fisherman and I'll catch you. He says, well, if you become a fisherman, I will become a rock on the top of a great mountain that you can't get to. She says, well, if you become a rock, I will become a rock climber to get to where you are. Finally, he says, I will be a, if you do that, I will become a sailboat and I'll sail away from you. To which the mother responds, if you become a sailboat, I'll become the wind itself to bring you where I want you to be. And on and on and on, until the bunny gives up and says, fine. I'll just stay home and be your bunny. And the mother says, great, have a carrot. And the bunny goes to sleep. And that story so moved me Because of a mother's love that knows no end, that will do all things and become all things in all places to bring her bunny home and to give them the love that he needs. And isn't that our savior? To become man, to become sin itself, to enter into his own creation like an author entering into his own story, to become all things, to bring his people home out of love for his bride. And what the bunny needed to realize more than anything else is that wherever he went, it would pale in comparison to the love of the mother that he already had. And isn't that what the psalmist is talking about? That whatever life I may dream for myself, whatever life that I so long for in this world, it all pales in comparison to the love of Jesus and his plan for my life. It all pales in comparison with what he's doing in this world. It pales in comparison to seeing Jesus with unveiled face in new heavens, new earth. That's what it looks like to be a weaned child, to have a calm and quieted soul. It's the opposite of every instinct we have. It's not doing more. It's not figuring out life. It's actually looking and knowing and experiencing God's care for his people. He is at work. Do we see it? Do we rest in it? And are we able to calm and quiet our souls? Because he's enough. Let me pray. Father in heaven, I long for a calm and quieted soul. I long in crazy days and years to sit and know that you hold the world in your hands and I don't. Lord, help us to reflect on the love you have for your people, the care that you have for us, that you are the same God who rose your son from the dead, who's at work today, that you are the same God who rescued your people out of Egypt that's still at work today, that you don't change. And so, Lord, we ask that you change our hearts, our souls, that we may be a people no matter what may come in this world to be content that you are our God. And that is enough. Help us hope in the Lord from this day forth and forevermore. Amen.